Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello and welcome to the Credit Edge, a weekly markets podcast. My name is James Crombie. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. This week, we're delighted to welcome Mark Atanasio, co-founder of Crescent Capital, the global alternative investment firm. How are you, Mark? Uh, very good today. Thanks, James. Thank you so much for joining us. We're really looking forward to getting your take on credit markets as well as sports, of course. We're also delighted to welcome back Lisa Lee, who covers global credit markets from London. How are you, Lisa? I'm doing great. Thanks, James. And thanks for having me. Also on today's show, we'll have Steve Flynn, who covers telecoms for Bloomberg Intelligence in New York. He has a lot to say, so do stay with us. But first, Mark Atanasio, co-founder of Crescent Capital, owner of the Milwaukee Brewers Baseball Club, a large, let's say, possibly major shareholder in the UK's Norwich City Football Club. Great to have you on the Credit Edge. Before we get to the sports, which I'm sure a lot of people want to hear about, let's talk debt. It's been a good year on the whole for credit markets, especially the really risky stuff. Does that surprise you though, Mark? I mean, high rates, slower earnings. It was all supposed to be a recipe for disaster this year. Defaults, bankruptcies. What do you make of it? Well, uh, a couple of things. Usually uh, the markets, especially the, the credit markets, move quicker. They, they're an advanced look to where things are going. So hopefully uh, the recoveries you've seen this year are bring good things in the future. And importantly, you haven't had the, the wall of worry, whether it was what's going to happen with higher rates, are there going to be defaults? What about this you know, maturity wall? It's all been pushed off. And now, as many uh, you know, economists would say, there won't be a recession next year, saying there will be. And so uh, you know, the, what, what happens in those types of markets is not only do you have a snapback, but the riskiest loans and bonds perform the best. So the key question for a lot of people right now is, has the Fed finished hiking? And if so, how fast and deep do you expect them to start easing? So, you know, that's, we try it at our firm. It's more of a, uh, a bottom-up strategy looking at companies and industries. And I think interest rates are about as hard as anything to call. Maybe uh, WTI is harder to call. But, you know, if there's going to be another hike, it's, it's maybe one that's left. And, and importantly for credit investors, we're still in a band where we're comfortable uh, cash flow cushions and comfortable loan to value cushions. Uh, the other side, I, I was talking with the head of our London office, Christine Vanabuchel, today. We uh, run several billion dollars of uh, private money in, in, in the UK, across Europe. And you know, the worry about higher interest rates would be cushioned. At some point, interest rates work their magic. And if you do have a slowdown, like you're asking, James, then rates will come down. And so I think we're in a very comfortable range for credit looking forward, certainly for the next year. If you want to look beyond that, well, but next year, even if things, 
it's higher for longer and there's a slowdown, I think we'll still be okay next year. Okay. Let's talk about private credit, though. It's a really hot market right now. Everybody's talking about it. You were one of the first to call it a golden age. Um, you've obviously been doing that business for quite a long time. Now everyone is in. Um, is it getting a bit overcrowded now? Yesterday, we had the um, head of UBS calling it a bubble. How's the competition affecting pricing and your ability to find deals to invest in? Yeah, I didn't hear the the bubble quote. Uh, sure, it's gotten more crowded. There's between 50 and 75 firms in the U.S. now that do this. Once upon a time, we were there were less than 10 of us. Uh, but there's still more dry powder in private equity than there is dry powder in private credit. So I think, you know, relative to, to bubble, that you're going to see excesses in every market, especially as, you know, less practiced competitors come in who are trying to buy market share. Uh, I don't, we don't see a, a bubble yet. There's some new uh, new things you can look at that, that I'm not sure there's sign of a bubble. There may be sign of, of diversification, like uh, NAV lending. But we haven't, we haven't seen any bubble-like, uh, practices. Pay and kind, I'm going on a little bit here, but pay and kind securities can be looked at as, as a bubble phenomenon. Com- companies can't pay. So you uh, you extend them credit in, or by, by not demanding interest. The other side of that is we're giving additional runway to private equity firms at, at very high rates of return for us as investors into the low teens, low and middle teens by, by uh, picking interest and and that's just continuing to back good companies at very responsible loan to values. As James said, you did were one of the first to call this the golden era. With interest rates as high as they are, and as you said, with the, a crowded more field, do you think it's still the golden era or have we entered a different stage? So, and by the way, I think I said that in a Bloomberg uh, interview, yes. so I'm <laughs> proud of that. Uh, the, the question is if you want to relate it to a, a baseball game, are, are we in the... We're not in the early innings anymore. The question are we in the middle or late innings? Do you want to relate it to a, a English football game? I think we're in the second half. But again, I think the the supply demand economics are such the quality of the private equity firms that are investing and the quality of the companies are buying. This is a very fertile time to make these investments, especially at these rates of return, which uh, most of the things we're investing in now are are twelve percent or higher. That is a high return and high yield. Do you think companies can keep paying those yields? And also private equity. What do you think about deal flow? Because it is harder to do deals when interest rates are that high and leverage is less forthcoming. So I'll take the second question first. Uh, Everybody got uh, addicted to higher multiples in the private equity world. And so you have a little bit of a log jam now because uh, companies, uh, private equity firms get used to selling things at like 15 times. And now maybe the the higher interest rates, you know, command more of like a 10 to 12 multiple. And, you know, you're thinking you're going to sell at 15, you don't want to sell at 12. Uh, but that's sort of the differential with the interest. We also have had continued revenue growth. You know, inflation also brings higher revenues. So, uh, from a cash flow cushion standpoint and a loan to value standpoint, we're at the same general cushion and loan to value that we've been for several years now. So, I think the logjam in the market or the lack of of uh, transaction activity isn't isn't just a function of of higher rates. It's more accepting the new the new normal. People need to accept the new normal. And given 
when you're looking across Europe and the U.S., what sectors sectors do you like, given the macroeconomic view and and where multiples are? So many years ago, back to 2008, the great you know the great fiscal crisis, we uh, we realized asset rich companies uh, maybe was uh, you know in golf if you if you you put the uh, the pin for the hole. We're using a lot of sporting analogies here. And to get to the hole, you have to go over a lake. It's a dangerous shot. <laughs> uh, and so we, we would look at, at asset value as something we got a lot of comfort in. We thought asset value was hitting it up the fairway. Asset value was not hitting it up the mm-hmm. fairway. Cash flow coverage was. So we, we moved along with a lot of other credit investors to a, a cash flow-based model. And we look at you know, free cash flow and ability to pay down debt. Almost all of our portfolios now are in, inside like a, a full multiple turn. I was talking to, again, I mentioned uh, we have an office here in, in Europe, in London. We were lending it, European direct lending at just over five times cash flow. And now uh, we're probably down a multiple point if you look at our season portfolios. So that gives you cushion also in a higher interest rate environment because the multiple that the existing portfolios are at is lower than the entry point that we came in at. So, uh, And, and so that means you're not going to have the defaults that everybody is forecasting, at least in, for and there's plenty of firms that like us. By the way, every firm you all are going to talk to will say that they carefully pick their credits. They don't just buy the market. You're never going to have someone come in here and say they're from buy some market. But there are firms we know that buy the market. Uh, we don't. Several firms don't. The firms that don't buy the market uh, should have comparatively few defaults in the next year. But talking about returns again, I mean, you're talking about double digits, um, which seems high. But then when you look at investment grade credit, you know, that returns you know, 5%, 6%, it, it returned almost you know, 5.5% just this month alone. So there is there is relative yield elsewhere in the world. Um, and there's no liquidity, no transparency, and a lot of potential risk in private. So how, and also the competition, I mean, how much actual compensation are you getting for all those extra risks in private? Well, you're getting several hundred basis points over the public markets. And I would argue you're mitigating that risk, uh, first of all, through structure. Private investments have better structure, and, and they have like forever. We started back when I worked at Drexel in the 1980s. Through structure, we had we had less risk. You didn't have the liquidity, but you had structure, inability to diligence the transaction longer. Public transaction, oftentimes you don't even meet with the management. You're looking at a video or, or getting a report. You have the ability to meet management get detailed reports and intimate discussions with private equity firms. Every private equity firm now has a capital markets desk. So we sort of cut out the the intermediary here. Uh, we meaning that the whole market, not only uh, the the credit providers, but the, the private equity firms. And so you have a lot more direct dialogue. And I, I think therefore, and often at Crescent, for example, we get observation rights. Uh, so I, I would think that the lack of liquidity is much more compensated for by uh, all the, the things I just mentioned. And given the number of players now, if we wanted to sell assets out of our portfolio, there, there's a line of folks who want to buy them. We don't want to let go of our assets. But if we, we did, there'd be plenty of firms. The fact that the market's grown exponentially uh, means there's plenty of firms to buy. There, there's some liquidity in the, quote, private market. Yeah, could you explain that further, Mark? Because JP Morgan and other banks are trying to get up some trading of private credit. 
might never become the secondary market that the high yield bonds or leveraged loans are, but do you see an actively traded market or is it more bespoke? And what are some of the perils of having some liquidity and what are some of the benefits? Well, I think there's always a benefit to having liquidity. Uh, and so, you know, one of the things I learned from Mike Milken is any bid is a good bid. And so uh, you don't have to take the bid, but it's nice to have one. And, and I think those firms want to get involved in part because you'll have a, a greater spread in private transactions that are negotiated than you would have uh, in a, you know public transactions. Once upon a time, again, back when I worked in the 80s, there was no tape for, in fact, when we started Crescent, there was no tape for high yield bonds. Now, you know, everything is uh, the largest companies is transparent. And, and so I think there's good reason for them to get involved. Also, I think uh, if you trade debt, you can then develop a banking relationship more easily because you have a, a reason to call a company. So I think there's strategic reasons for JP Morgan and other banks to get into the trading of private credit, which is it's all good for the market. Maybe maybe not as good as you get more liquidity. It may it may tighten spreads from what we're able to lend at now. That's that's maybe adverse for investors, but still I I'd probably trade off getting a, a bid. You don't you're not afraid that. of the Trading bids, lowering their marks, and introducing volatility? You know, the accountants have gotten much more uh, every year when you have your portfolios audited. They're, they're really drilling down on what's going on in these companies. You can't, it's not so easy to just hold things at cost anymore. And the accountants also will look at, uh, from an accounting standpoint, uh, you may have a private loan, a unit tranche or a private piece in a company if there's bank loans that trade. You can't have bank loan in a company that trades at 80 cents and a mezzanine loan you're going to count at 100 cents. That doesn't work anymore. So that's already, there's already been inroads on that. And, uh, you know, we, we preach long-term holds to our clients in any event. And so you're going to, whatever the volatility is, you're going to have less volatility and you also can occasionally, if it's a true one-off trade, you can get the, you've got to demonstrate it's a one-off trade. So if JP Morgan, to pick a name, you know, trades something at a, at a steep discount because somebody had to capitulate on a loan for their own reasons, doesn't mean that you have to necessarily mark your portfolio down. I think that's the, the thing that worries some people is that, you know, just this massive growth, um, there isn't any regulation, not a lot of transparency unless you're actually on the deal. Um, what gives you the confidence that the guardrails are on, that this market isn't going to blow up, that we're not, you know, dot-com bubble all over again? I mean, it's, it's a, any, any market that grows this quickly, you know, sets off a few alarm bells. That's a good question, actually. I'd, I'd start by saying, you know, years ago when I'd go on uh, Bloomberg or uh, some of your friendly competitors, it, they started, people would throw around the term shadow banking, shadow, you know, sounding like shadowy, you know? <laughs> Uh, and, you know, I would argue that, you know, the, the professional, like we've done this for 30 years and so maybe some of our less seasoned competitors have still done it well over a decade. We're paying a lot more care and, and, and we live and die by our track records. You have a bad vintage fund now with this many competitors, it, it can put you out of business. So I say that the, the, the quality of the care that we would bring would be greater than, you know, third party regulation. Uh, which, which, by the way, often ends up being somewhat uh, top-down. So, how many times do you see in banks when there are crises? It's because the financial systems can't track the derivatives and other excesses. Here, you don't have, at least for the kind of lending we and most of our, you know, 
competitors have it. There's no derivative. It's just a, it's a loan. Sometimes there's a turn of leverage or a half a turn. Sometimes there's nine to 12% yields. You don't really need uh, any leverage to make it work, but it, it's, it's, there's nothing that fancy about it. It's, so when you look around the world, Mark, and everything you cover, which is a big, big, um, you know, coverage area, and looking into 2024, what's your biggest trade? What are you most excited about for next year? Well, we're hoping it just stays just like this, and nothing, <laughs> nothing is forever. Uh, with all the, the the worry, you know, with with these yields at, at these reference points and spreads, uh, and continued modest revenue growth, we're in a very comfortable place. And we, we hope nothing changes. You have teams both in Europe and the U.S. When you look at the two regions, look at the macroeconomic landscape, the political landscape, the lending landscape, which area are you most excited about? Where do you think there's more opportunity? Would you rather be in Europe? Would you rather be in the U.S.? And also, what kind of companies and deals? They're getting some of these private credit loans are getting enormous. We just had a 4.9 billion one. Are you are you keen on participating in those, or would you rather stay in sort of the upper middle market, lower middle market? So I think if Chris Wright were here, who runs our private credit, he would say we want to we want to do it all. Uh, you know, there can be very large loans that are inefficiently priced or that provide a you know good risk reward for our investors, and we'd want to participate in those. Generally, you you in things that are less picked over, you have better opportunities. You know, Europe especially uh, for U.S. investors, it doesn't feel as transparent. There's multiple countries. What about currency? What laws? Well, you know, we can we can ring fence those risks with trying to stick with, you know, we, we're looking at a company right now that's outside U.K. jurisdiction, but we're going to use U.K. law, So, which, by the way, enforces creditors' rights a lot better than U.S. law does. Uh, and, and so, you know, when you ask about opportunity, there, it's sort of uh, apples and oranges, or which, which flavor you prefer, vanilla or chocolate. Uh, Europe, we're seeing right now little lower debt multiples, little higher yields, uh, little smaller companies. Uh, U.S. in our in our direct lending practice, that's a comparative, and in our larger lending practice with our credit solutions business. The, the risk that everybody's talking about here is opportunity for us where you can extend loans to companies that want a longer runway to uh, employ their business strategies. And then we think we can get into the middle teens returns and more of what we used to do classically in mezzanine lending. And so, you know, the opportunities are, are somewhat are somewhat different. So the big opportunity globally, when you go look, look at everything you cover, I mean, it, it is private credit, is that right? And, and you're sector agnostic and there's nothing particularly you're focused on you know, pinpointing right now to, to exploit, to take advantage of? Yeah. Yeah. We're sector agnostic. We, we don't, so there's industries that we tend to not favor, like transportation is difficult. Anything with, with uh, a lot of commodity swings, energy, I think as a private lender, there's those, there's firms that do just energy investing that have engineers and geologists and, you know, folks on the ground in the Permian basin, we don't have that, so we're trying to exploit where we have an advantage. One of our advantages is close relationships for 30 years with private equity firms that we've lent money to for 30 years. So we try to work on that. Uh, you know, at any given time, there may be you know, certain industries may have uh, bigger issues with the uh, cost of labor right now, or 
but that all gets factored. You're still going to try to get factored into the same model of, you know, what's your what's your loan of value? What's your cash flow cushion? What's the business niche? You know, who's the transaction sponsor? What do you think of the management team? What are the growth prospects? Mark, so you have a storied career in in credit, but lately you've also become a sports owner, Milwaukee Brewers, and now it's a landmark week for you in in the UK with the Norwich City Canaries. Can you tell us a little bit of what ju- what just happened? I want you to share and hear from your own words. Sure. Ni- 19 years ago, as a longtime baseball fan, I bought in the Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, my wife, Debbie, said, are you going to lose all our money? <laughs> uh, at that time, 40% of our revenues came from central source in baseball, so I didn't think so. Uh, and over the, those 19 seasons, we felt we developed a, a – demonstrated management expertise both in financial pieces of sport and the you know the, the what goes on in the field one of the things uh, James we talked about before you got on is you know why is sports so tough it's tough because you can't control what happens on the field you can't control injuries and that that's what drives your your product so we thought we could export that expertise we've looked for back to 2008 at English football clubs and uh about a year and a half ago now, a banker for Norwich City approached us, said that they were uh, there was a selling shareholder. And, uh, Delia Smith is a beloved, uh, and and I as I was saying earlier, beloved figure in the UK and is as lovely and wonderful in person as, she, as her public persona. And they were looking for someone who could do more than just have a a check to write. And given our expertise in baseball, they thought it might help, especially as there's an advent of analytics in in British football and, and all football. So uh, that got us in and then got us uh, addicted <laughs> to say I didn't know much about the sport. I still don't. The last year, I'd only been an investor for six weeks at the AGM. So this year, uh, and with our shareholders going from like 15.9 to 40%, there'll probably be a few more questions, will be equivalent uh, economic owners with, with Delia and her husband. Uh, but you know, it's still Delia's team. It's been her team for 28 years. Um, they've got, you know, four board seats. I have a board seat. I'm still learning. That's your wife's point, Mark, though. How do you avoid losing all your money and how do you actually make money as an investor in, in English football? Making money in English football is, is, uh, different than other leagues. The chief difference of which is that the, the league isn't really a league because you have promotion and relegation. And even like within the Premier League, you have the top teams. They're on a different level. They know they're always going to be there. They also have different challenges. The, the amount of money you have to spend to, you know, and, and you're not only competing within the 92 teams in, in the UK, you're competing with teams around the world for talent. Uh, so that's a, a special challenge. Uh, once you get down a league from that, you actually, in order to make money, you have to have a successful player trading operation. That's fascinating stuff. I do want to go on uh, uh, more detail about that. But but before we um, talk to Steve Flynn over at Bloomberg Intentions, I have one more question really about baseball. I know nothing about baseball, I have to admit, but certainly I'm more of a cricket fan. But um, there have been rule changes, right? And that has affected the the duration of the game. How does that affect the business in terms of attendance and in terms of concessions and you know uh, ratings, et cetera? Good, very good question. It's uh, and I, I, I'm one of the six owners on the labor committee, so I was part of getting those rule changes, uh, or the fact of them negotiated. And uh, actually, uh, the owner of the Mariners, John Stanton, led the committee that 
came up with those rule changes. The good news is attendance was up markedly this year, I think 10%, something like that, which, you know, when you've got tens of millions of fans, that's noticeable. I think that has to do with the fact that the, the game was shorter. Uh, maybe, maybe surprising, maybe not surprising. We all thought beer sales were going to come down. It did not. <laughs> you just sold, you know, we had some question, by the way, on whether you should, should stop selling beer in the seventh inning or, or sell it for the same, you know, two and a half hours you always did. We, we, decided to uh to cut it off in the seventh inning just so you just people could you know, be drink responsibly or but they drank as much as they used to uh so it didn't hurt it helped uh, attendance didn't hurt concessions and i think was great for the sport because there was a lot of standing around what what we all found the beauty of it were longtime baseball fans the next generation of fans found slow and boring so it's not just that we the game is shorter, but there's a lot, a lot more action. There's not as much standing around, and that's, I think, been good. And are there more changes to make, Mark? More, more things to do on that front? Yeah, the chief one that we're looking at is having a uh, a, a computer generated strike zone. Uh, it sort of takes the umpires out of the game. Now, I I like the umpires. It's kind of and there's a human element, but now with with instant replay, if you if you watch Wimbledon, you know it's actually good television where you could see where the, the, the tennis ball hits the line or just misses. And so uh, whether a pitch is a strike or not is now getting a lot of focus and there's ways that we're going to uh, address that. So the empire still is involved. So that that's probably the, the chief way we're going to shorten uh, some of the time between pitches even more now. Uh, so, you know, when you shave three seconds off a pitch, you shave five minutes off a game. Great stuff, Mark Atanasio, co-founder of Crescent Capital, owner of the Milwaukee Brewers Baseball Club and Norwich City. Great to have you on the Credit Edge. Thanks, James. I appreciate it. And Lisa, it's always good to chat with you. Yes, it's lovely to chat with you, Mark. Please do come back again on the show and speak to us soon. And go Norwich. All right. Go Canaries. (laughs) Also, big thanks to Lisa Lee with Bloomberg News in London. Brilliant to see you again. Thanks so much. Thank you. So as I mentioned earlier, we're joined again by Steve Flynn from Bloomberg Intelligence. How's it going, Steve? I'm good. How are you, James? Very good. Thank you. So let's look at the high yield market. Um, it's had a pretty good year. It's rebounded over the past month. It's been risk on. Total returns, 8.5% so far. I think this is a lot better than most people were expecting. You know, we talked earlier in the show about how we we're expecting this year to be difficult, distressed, and you know, bankruptcies and all this. But in fact, the riskiest companies have done really well. And yet, communications, which is such a big part of the junk bond market, I mean, it really hasn't done that well. I mean, it's really lagging quite a bit in terms of spreads, in terms of returns. Why is that? What's going on? What's what's the difference? What's the problem in, in communications right now? Sure. I'd say there, there's a couple of things. Number one, um, we've seen increased competition, uh, particularly for broadband customers. customers. So you've had companies uh, spend a lot of uh, capital investment into their networks to provide faster and broader uh, internet speeds. And so far, you've had you know the cable and telecom folks deploying fiber uh, deeper into their networks. You've had the wireless companies deploying fixed wireless access networks, and you've had um, you know an upcoming we should see even uh, service offerings from satellite companies such as uh, SpaceX's Starlink and Amazon's Cooper projects. And so what you've had is you know increased competition for broadband customers and an increasing capital investment, um, which you know 
you, so you need capital, right? So you take on more debt. A lot of these companies are free cash flow negative. And so that's been <clears throat> one of the big uh, negative impacts for the sector. Sector. Secondly, um, we've seen a changing um, environment for pay TV services, right? So you've seen subscribers move from traditional um, cable TV or linear pay TV uh, services uh, to internet-based TV and streaming services. And which has led to a decline in cable and satellite TV customers, uh, which has been negative for the sector. And I'd say the third thing is, listen, this sector has a lot of debt. Uh, people have uh, historically been very comfortable lending to the communications sector, right? Because you have a lot of assets. You've got cable networks, you have telecom networks, you have wireless networks, you have spectrum, you have satellites, you have things that people are comfortable lending to. So it's always had a lot of debt. But now the issue is that, you know, when it comes to refinancing this debt, right, we're in a much higher rate environment, so it's going to be much more expensive to finance it. There's a lot of floating rate debt, right? So we've seen the underlying um, SOFR benchmark go up, and so uh, the cost of your floating rate is going, debt is going up. So there's a lot of uh, concerns as we head into 2024. On that competition point you started with, though, Steve, I mean, I'm a bit confused because I, I would assume that a lot of these, when you talk about telecoms, for example, a lot of them just monopolies because they have the grid, they have everything set up. It's impossible for me to just set up my own telecom company and compete with that. Is is technology changing all of that? Yes, you're, you're seeing a lot more competition. So you've so for many years, the, the cable um, companies basically crushed it in internet. They had uh, most of your subscriber additions. Um, but over the couple, past few years, you've seen a lot of the telecom companies turn around and reinvest in their networks, push fiber deeper into their networks, and therefore offering um, greater broadband coverage and higher broadband speed. So that's uh, become made them more competitive with the cable offerings. And then also the wireless players have, have started with fixed wireless access, where they're using some of their spectrum to um, provide um, kind of fixed broadband service uh, via wireless. So basically they would send you a, a device, you would just plug it in, easy to set up, and boom, you have um, broadband into your apartment, your house, what, what have you. So there's a lot more competition for broadband subscribers. So that means that the existing providers, what are they going to do about it? Are they going to, are they going to consolidate? Are they going to go bust? What's the, what's the outcome? Well, th there's a lot of companies that um, have taken on some, some big debt loads, and some of their capital structures are stressed. If you look at like a Lumen, for example, um, or your traditional telecom company. So um, they're facing a fair amount of pressure. Altice USA is another company that um, was building out Fiverr deeper and has a, a fair amount of leverage. Um, and I think some are positioned you know, to do okay next year, and others, I think, will run into some more challenges. So as far as I mentioned Altice, um, I think that is one that, that may have the potential to recover next year. The company's leverage is high. It's about seven times, which is high. Um, but the near-term liquidity looks okay. Uh, the company has cash on hand, has availability of its revolving credit line. And so that appears okay. They have a new management team in place. A lot of the management team has come over from Comcast, uh, including the CEO, Dennis Matthew. And they're starting to show progress. They're starting to show some operational improvements. Now, that they have a long way to go to really fix the company. But I think that's one that's, you know, it's distressed. But I think that's a name that could recover next year. Are there any that won't recover? I think the, one of the more interesting names next year is likely to be uh, Dish. Uh, the company um, has a lot of obligations due through the end of 2024, and as it looks right now, they appear not to have uh, enough liquidity to get there. So, you know, Dish has uh, their pay TV operations, uh, satellite-based TV service, which you see a lot of commercials for. I think people know about that. That their subscribers are declining, but they still produce a lot of free cash flow. 
the issue is the other part of DISH has been um, investing in the wireless business. They've spent a lot of money on Spectrum, and they're now building out a nationwide 5G wireless network. But they have invested huge sums, but there's a lot more investment to go. So when you look at you know DISH going forward, they have big uh, outlays over the next uh, you know through the end of 24. They have some large um, bond maturities coming due. They are buying out minority interests in some of their spectrum entities. They have other spectrum payments, and the company's free cash flow negative because they are spending so much money building out this you know 5G wireless network. So you know that's one I think that's interesting. There's one other thing going on with that credit company. Before the end of this year, they're going to merge with EchoStar. So Charlie Ergen controls Dish and it controls EchoStar. He's merging them together. EchoStar has a couple of billion dollars of cash in the balance sheet, so that will help the liquidity of the company. But it still does not appear to be enough to deal with all the obligations that they have for 2024. So they're going to have to find some other financing. So rates, let's say they stay high next year, um, there are big maturities coming up. You think DISH, which is actually quite a big holding for a lot of high-yield fund managers, do you think they hit a wall, they have to restructure? Well, I think they, ha- they have to figure something out, right? So yes, DISH is the second largest um, name in the communication sector in the Bloomberg uh, U.S. Corporate High Yield Bond Index. So it is a big name out there. There's the, you know, the Capital structure is a little complicated, right? You have a couple of dish- different issuing entities. You've got secured and unsecured. You've got some intercompany obligations. You have Star now coming into the mix. So there's, there's, it's a big, complex capital structure. Uh, please look at our research on the terminal. We, we, you know, we break it all down for you. Um, but yeah, that is definitely a name to watch in 2024. You know, a lot of people, and we were talking about this earlier on the show, are very excited about private debt as an option for issuers. Is that something that, that these sorts of you know, troubled telecoms borrowers could consider? I mean, is it, is it going to be something that they could tap into potentially? Yeah, we haven't seen too much private debt in, in telecoms recently besides LBOs. And it's, you know, these are big companies, so they're, they're difficult to LBO. Um, what w- interesting trend we have seen, which we're expecting others to maybe mimic, is tapping the asset-backed securities market or the ABS market. So, interestingly, a large company called Frontier Communications, uh, this was a few months ago, they took their Dallas Metro fiber network along with the Dallas uh, customer contracts and they put them into a subsidiary and they issued uh, over a billion dollars of asset-backed notes on that entity. They were able to put very hard, high leverage on it and realize a weighted average cost of capital that was like in your high 8% range. So that was, you know, given where the high yield market is today, given where the levered loan market is today, you know, for a highly levered company. Um, that was an attractive avenue of financing. And we expect others to mimic that. Now, a lot of them have talked about it, and but we haven't seen any other deals yet. But that's definitely something to keep an eye on as a way to get extra financing for some of these companies. So let's look ahead to 2024. Everyone's kind of um, looking now at maybe a soft landing, maybe rates even start to come down at some point. Um, there's got to be some opportunities, right, for your industries. There's got to be some performers out there. What are you most excited about for next year? Yeah, well, I think some of the higher quality names um, in, in communications are well positioned. Some of them have relatively you know, modest leverage ratios, have okay financials. If you think of like a company like Charter, Charter, it's got a big debt load, half uh, about 70% of the debt load, debt load is secured investment grade, about 30% of it is high yield. Um, it yields, you know, offers some pretty good yield, but it, it's a relatively stable credit. I mean, we've talked about all the things that are challenging with regard to cable companies, but the company still produces a lot of cash flow. They've had the same um, leverage target ratios for the past few years, and they've been very steady. So I think that's, you know, uh, in, a, in a sector that has a lot of volatility, I think that's one that could be a little bit more stable. One to watch. Okay. Steve Flynn from Bloomberg Intelligence, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. 
we look forward to having you back on the show very soon. And as he said, do check out Steve's great uh, analysis on the Bloomberg Terminal. It's all there, the iCred. And thanks again to Mark Atanasio, co-founder of Crescent Capital, and Lisa Lee from Bloomberg News. Read all of Lisa's great scoops on the Terminal and at Bloomberg.com. And also, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Give us a review, tell your friends, or email me directly at jcrombie8 at bloomberg.net. That's jcrombie, C-R-O-M-B-I-E, as in my name, at bloomberg.net. I'm James Crombie. It's been a pleasure having you. Join us again next week on The Credit Edge. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.